You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into the journey of their lives, the ups and downs, the career paths, the life paths, all of it, because I believe that our feelings of being successful, enough, fulfilled, worthy, lovable, on and on and on, are not out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, be this, then I will feel it. You will for like a glimmer, but likely you'll just keep on putting it outside of yourself and chasing it, which is why we have to claim it for ourselves every single day, sometimes every moment of the day. On today's episode, I have Alex, or you could call her Alexandra. She prefers Alex Jameson. And we had so, so, so much fun. I'm so excited for you to hear this one. She is an Oscar-nominated author, the best-selling author of five books, the most recent one she wrote with her husband, Bob Gower, called Radical Alignment. And it's about something we all do daily, yet have very little tools and understanding of, how to have conversations. (laughs) So, so excited about her new book. And really, this whole conversation, it was so much fun, laughter, tears. And by the way, Alex's work has been praised by Oprah, The Today Show, USA Today, People, and more. She's got a lot going on. She does so many different things, and it just really inspires me. So let's get into this episode. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm so excited about your new book, but I also was last night just even like thinking of like, okay, we met, I think it was six years ago, thanks to a Facebook flashback (laughs) telling me about Soul Camp. We met at Soul Camp years ago, and I was like, I feel like back then you must have been there doing something with food. And it was so Mm -hmm. interesting now to be thinking like, wait, was that right? Because... Then like starting to like look back into who is Alex, which and do you prefer being called Alex or Alexander? Alex, please. Okay. Yeah. You know, because, um, yeah, I think when we'll get into like the start of a lot of your journey must be around food. And now I don't even I don't even think of you in food. And so I was really I was confused in my mind. Who is this woman anyway? <laughs> Well, I was like, wait, didn't I, wasn't she probably there like talking about some food? And then also like in the, right now you're in your painting studio and I remember you getting into watercolor and like watching that journey and everything. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. (laughs) So let's start with, um, yeah, let's, when I met you, you were doing stuff with food. Where did that start? Your passion with food and healing and what it can do for your body and all of that? Or is, it, is that how you got into food? So I'll, I'll be honest. I grew up on an old farm. My mom had an organic gardening radio show for 10 years. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Every Saturday, she would drag me down to the studio with her and she would record Eve's organic garden. She was a master organic gardener. So wow. we grew a lot of our own food. It was like a, it's a very small, like hobby farm. We didn't have animals or anything, but we grew a lot of our own veggies and fruits and stuff. So I grew up with a total hippie back to the lander family situation. Yes. And, but then she's making a radio show. 
So that's a like, yeah, like progressive and like, let me be on the land and then let me go take this. I got to go take this to the people. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, it, and it was a call-in show in the 70s and 80s. So people would call. Oh. She was like Wikipedia or Google for gardeners in the Northwest, basically. Amazing. Yeah. yeah so she was super ahead of her time. And so I always grew up with this idea, oh, well, I can just make something. <laughs> I could just make things and talk about things. <laughs> right. That's what we do in our family. <laughs> yeah. But I was also a total sugar addict. And I actually started going to Sunday school at the church down the street from our house. My parents did not go to church. I went to Sunday school by myself because I found out the kids in church got Kool-Aid and cookies. So I was like, oh, I could just go get treats? Bye, mom. Going to church. Like, that's how weird I was. And we didn't have any junk food in the house. I was like, sugar, here I come. So by my mid-20s, I was actually really sick. I, I was eating mm. nothing but junk food. And So is that then when you like, so move out, do you go to college? Do you like, what did you think you were going to do with your life? Or? Oh, no. I, it's <laughs> such a funny question now. Like I rolled my eyes. But that's at that age, we are like, we have this pressure to figure out what are we doing with our lives? We did a college degree and we need to enter the workforce and we are taking a job that we are in until we die. <laughs> You know, it's so true. And I'm, I'm so lucky that I had parents who were both creatives and my dad was a high school principal for 25 years. So he was always telling us, do what you love. He felt he had a calling for education. Like that was his calling. He was being groomed to be like an executive. His dad was super fancy. He became a teacher. And wow. so he always said, do what you love. The money will follow. And so I went into college to be a journalism major mm. and I hated the classes. They were just so boring. So I switched over to history because the history classes were so fascinating. And then my friends and I launched a zine in college because that's what you did in the mid nineties was you made a zine. And, Which, and a zine was, that's, that's back to like print things. Yeah, right? we actually printed. Like, wait, that was let me let me flash. Reblogging. We actually wrote and printed a paper magazine every month and we sold ads wow. for it and we wrote all the stuff in it. I did music reviews. And what were you like right yeah, was it like about what was happening on the college campus? It was sort of like a I was actually kind of the investigative reporter slash trivia column writer. Because <laughs> I love trivia. I did a, an investigation into all of the um, free pregnancy test places in Eugene, Oregon, where we went to college. There were like four places that were constantly advertising to college girls, get your free pregnancy test here. Well, two of them were front groups for religious right organizations. And you would go in. So I went into all four of them. I went in and you would get your free, like, you know, they give you the free urine test. Before they would give you the, the results, they would sit you down and they would hand you this miniature baby doll to hold and then talk to you about how, you know, girls who get abortions, their boyfriends are more likely to break up with them. And like, they gave you this whole hard sell about how you should keep the baby or give it up for adoption before you even get your test results. So <laughs> I wrote this whole expose on that. 
Interesting. Yeah. I was very into like exposing what was going on out there. So you were in somewhat pursuing journalism in your own right, yeah. even if you switched classes. Yeah, my yeah. grammar was just bad because I hated the grammar classes <laughs> in journalism. So yeah, and it's funny to think about what I've done with my career in the last 20 years because what I do now and what you do now, like this wasn't a job option no. <laughs> to put on your resume, right? Yeah. We've kind of created our own things as we've gone along. Yeah. Hence your comment about what are you up to now? Because you've done 10 things and that's true. Which is I love, like I love that shit. Like I think it's awesome, right? But I think that hopefully now more people think that, but that I think would used to be like looked down upon like, oh, she doesn't know. She's wishy-washy. She can't make up her mind. She's a fail. Like she failed at these things, whatever. I think that's fucking awesome. Like I love it. <laughs> like that's, You know, so yeah. I'm always even more intrigued by people that I see doing that. So also then going, so you leave home, move to college. Is that also then let me eat all the shit I wasn't allowed to have in my house? <laughs> like, is that, did that change a lot? Oh yeah. I, f I got my first job as a dishwasher at the age of 14 and I haven't stopped working since basically because we didn't have much money. So if I wanted any money to hang out and go out with my friends, I had to earn it. And from that day at the age of 14, I used all my money to go to the mall with my friends and hang out and eat junk food. And by the way, my first job as a dishwasher was at the Muffin Break, which was like a Starbucks before there was Starbucks. And my favorite was twice a week when they made the frostings and I got to lick the bowls of icing before I washed them. <laughs> and these are like industrial size things of icing. It's disgusting. <laughs> I guess that is a highlight as a dishwasher. <laughs> that was great. I don't get tips, but I get lots of free sugar. <laughs> so yeah, I, I went to college. I lived, which is really funny now that I say this out loud, I lived on the number two value meal at McDonald's, like two cheeseburgers, fries, and a Coke. That was my jam. Loved it. And then I moved to New York City when I was 25 and proceeded to get more like exhausted, depressed, put on 30 pounds after college, migraine headaches almost every single day. I was like, I was just falling apart. I was in constant pain. And what were you doing? Like, what did you move to New York to do? Um, I didn't really, be. I didn't really have a plan except my brother oh. and his wife lived here. And they said, come to New York. Like, we'll help you find a place to stay. We'll help you get a job. And moving and to when New you graduate, did you graduate like before that and then get some of like, what did you enter the workforce, I oh guess? As? It's so funny, these terms now that I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Oh, I, lo <laughs> I love that you're asking these questions because as I say it out loud, I'm like, I must seem like the flightiest, di most directionless person. But I actually got an internship straight out of college at one of the world's largest advertising firms, Young and Rubicam. I got an internship which paid $200 a week, <laughs> moved to San Francisco. Oh. Yeah. I lived right downtown San Francisco. I worked in advertising for a year, which I hated so much because I worked on things like selling Clorox bleach. And I was like, I don't even use bleach. Why am I 
spending my whole life thinking about getting people to buy more of it. This is awful. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, I was so fed up with being like a corporate drone that at a year, I got a job up in Lake Tahoe and I moved to a ski resort to work at a ski resort area for a year. And I was like, corporate America is not for me. I'm going to move to the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Again, like I, you, you made some comment about you, whatever you called yourself, which I don't agree with. Like, I think this is amazing again. Like, okay, this, I got a corporate job. Look at me with this number one, something, something company is sucking the joy out of my life. Let me go work on the mountains. This is fun. Like I'm all for those choices. <laughs> It was great. I went from my dad was so proud of me for getting this internship in advertising. And then I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm leaving San Francisco and I'm going to go hitchhike to work every day because I couldn't afford a car. I'm going to go hitchhike to work every day and work at a ski resort for the next year because I get a ski pass and I finagled my way into one of the few jobs that had health insurance. (laughs) Got it. And so then, so is that then from there, your brother is asking you to come to New York? Yeah. So my year snowboarding, which by the way, I could have lived there forever. It was beautiful. Yeah, I was like, you can't see her, but she had a very wistful <laughs> expression as she paused to take herself back. <laughs> I mean, Lake Tahoe is one of the most beautiful places on earth. It is so gorgeous and it's so fun to live there. And then I had a couple of really bad falls snowboarding and I screwed up my knee so bad. Um, I tore my ACL. It was a disaster. I was like, okay, so I have to get knee surgery. Do I do that here? And I, I remember I had this moment where I was like, if I stay here and get surgery, I'm never leaving Lake Tahoe. Like, this is it. This is where I live for the rest of my life. And while it was great, And it was super fun living there. I mean, it's like 10 guys to every woman that lives up there in these ski towns. So it was like, woohoo, easy pickings. Um, It's like, no, I have other stuff I want to do in my life. Didn't know what that was. But my brother said, hey, come to New York. We'll get you a good job with health insurance. You can get your surgery here. We have some of the best surgeons in the world. Come to New York. So that's when I moved. That sounds like a good job offer. (laughs) (laughs) And then so what happens in New York or where do you like hit the like, okay, my health, like what's happening here? Well, my very first job in New York City was as the day bartender at an Irish pub in the East Village. So I basically sold huge Irish breakfasts and Guinness to hungover people all day and while I looked for another job. And that was so crazy too, because that was in 1999. So the East Village was still the down and dirty Manhattan that we remember from the movies. So like people would come in off the street and ask to use the bathroom. And then I would find their like heroin needles in the trash. So it was like people were ODing. It wasn't long after the squatters riots. Like New York City was still a little... Um, uh, Interesting and terrifying in that way. (laughs) But then I got a job at a law firm. Now it was a cool law firm, but no law firm is super cool. But it was, it's like one of the most famous 
entertainment law firms. So our entertainment, yeah, that makes law more fun. Yeah. So my the lawyer that I worked for, I was his assistant. His clients were like Shania Twain and Bruce Springsteen and Sting. So it was but I never met any of those people. I just did their paperwork. <laughs> it was really boring. <laughs> and we weren't allowed to, like none of the assistants were allowed to have internet on their computers because they were afraid we were going to abuse our time. And it was just so embarrassing. Like I remember walking in on the lawyer that I worked for like I just walked right in. I put papers on his desk and I was like, oh, he's looking at porn while we're at work. And I'm the one who's not allowed to have internet. Right. We can't trust the assistants with the internet. But anyway, I got my health insurance and I got my knee surgery taken care of. And as soon as I had my knee surgery, things started to get horrible. That's when I started to get really sick. I think it was the huge doses of antibiotics that I got for the surgery. And plus I was still eating total junk all the time, you know, fast food, takeout, like I never cooked for myself. So I started to have migraine headaches almost every single day. And I don't know if you have had migraines. Yeah. I used to have migraines all the time when I was in high school and then here and there other times. Yeah. They, you can't, you can't get through your day. No, it's debilitating. I was just like constantly popping Advil. And at a certain, after like two months of this, I was like, wait a minute, I'm 25 years old. I am not supposed to feel this bad. So I went to a doctor and the first doctor I went to after talking to me for like two minutes, he's like, all right, here's a prescription for painkillers. And you should talk to somebody about getting on Prozac because you're depressed. And I was like, oh shit. Um, you know, real story here. My family on my mom's side, especially lots of mental illness, lots of addiction, several suicides in just in the time that I've been alive. And my grandfather was a doctor who prescribed everybody and anybody who wanted it painkillers. So I had this immediate visceral reaction when he gave me these prescriptions. And I was like, oh my God, like this is it. This is where it happens. This is where I start going down that path to being addicted to painkillers. And now I'm, you know, what's going to happen to me? So I decided to channel my mother (laughs) and seek out what we called then kind of an alternative doctor. Mm -hmm. Now we would call them you know, like a functional medicine doctor, you know, somebody with Buddhas and ferns in their office, basically. (laughs) And he sat me down and he asked me what I was eating. And I told him and he's like, oh, no wonder you feel like crap. Which back then there's, yeah. First of all, we don't have wellness influencers. (laughs) Nope. Yeah. The folks are like, yeah, back then that's, yeah. It's already people these days, it's like there's so much information out there about what you're eating and how that makes you feel. But back then, nobody was talking about that. No, this was this was super fringe stuff. There was no Whole Foods. You know, I was listening to this one weirdo guy, Gary Null, who's still out there doing his thing, doing his radio show on natural healing. And so this alternate doctor, he said, okay, here's a list of foods to eat. Here's a list of foods to avoid. And you need to start taking some supplements because you have like no nutrition in your body. And I cried when I saw the list of foods I couldn't eat because 
it was everything I was eating. <laughs> but I was like, okay, I have to do this because I'm at my, my wit's end. And he recommended a couple books. I went to the library, the New York City Public Library. I got all the books. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a whole section on food and healing. I read everything. I dove in. I became vegan. I was like, I am going full on into this. I lived on, I made green juice. I bought a juicer. I mean, this was 2000. Nobody had a juicer at home. And within two weeks, like the fog lifted, the headaches stopped. I had energy. I remember waking up this one morning. I was like, I'm awake. I, I slept well. I have, oh my God, I could go to the gym. It was a revelation. And that's when I just, I got so into food as healing. I decided to go to culinary school. I went to this special culinary program that was just health supportive cuisine, like Ayurvedic, macrobiotic, gluten-free. And again, this was 2000. Nobody freaking knew what gluten was. No, because I gave it up in 2004 and it was back then even like, I was like, I don't understand this. And yeah, and like, yeah, it was, there was no gluten-free products. There was like one loaf of bread <laughs> and a terrible cookie. <laughs> oh, they were bad. They were so bad back then. <laughs> so yeah, I, I got really, really into it. And basically like within six months, I healed my body from the pain and suffering I was in, went, decided to leave my job and go to culinary school and yet I still had to make money. So at night, I was working in a super smoky, because this was a pre-smoking ban. I was working in a smoky bar, Lower East Side, serving drinks, and then go going to this super healthy culinary school during the day. And was that, were you then like, I'm going to become a chef? Like, what was your intention with that? I didn't really know when I started. You were just like... I'm obsessed. Uh, like, yes, yeah. healthy food, food healing. Yeah. Give me all the information. The thought that I could like write a cookbook someday was not even a concept in my mind at this point. I was just like, this is the way of the future. Like everybody needs to know about this. And I was obsessively telling everyone about how they could change, which, oh my gosh, I was so annoying. I was telling everyone who would listen to me that they should be vegan. Whew, everybody needs to be like me. Dot com. And, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but they had a good reputation at the school for helping people find work after. And I think before I was even done, I was working as a private chef one day a week for a fancy family that had some health concerns and they wanted to like cooking for people who had cancer and they were mm -hmm. using diet cooking for people who had diabetes or they had some kind of food allergy. So I started doing that right away, but that wasn't very scalable. You know, you can only work for a couple families at a time. Yeah. <clears throat> and really rich families get very demanding and have no boundaries. That was my experience. Yeah. <laughs> It was, it was very strange. But while I was working, so while I'm going to school and cooking, and then at night working in the smoky bar, that's where I met my now ex-husband. So I saw this cute guy at the bar. I totally walked up to him and like started chatting him up and picking him up. It's so great working in a bar, actually. Like It changed how I socialize with people because I had a job. I had an excuse. 
Right, you were like the, oh, I feel awkward starting a conversation. Like, you work there. You can, whatever. Yeah, you can just check in. How's their drink? Oh, are you enjoying the place? How's your night? I'm a friendly, I'm a friendly worker. (laughs) I was like professionalizing my little slutty flirtiness, you know? (laughs) So we started dating and he was this budding filmmaker. And here I was this like food revolutionary. And it was like less than a year after we met that we came up with the idea for Supersize Me. And And was that more your idea? And like, where was he at? Because it's been years since I've seen that movie. So like, yeah, was that like inspired by your journey? Yeah. Um, Although I don't know if he would admit that. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Did he come up with a brilliant idea? Oh, yeah. All by himself. After Um, meeting you. Yes. Yeah. We were together for almost a year. He was a filmmaker. He had made the first internet reality show that got picked up by MTV. So he was like one of the early adopter reality show people and it got picked up. It became an MTV show. And so he had this little bit of money you know, he had like 40 grand that he earned from doing this MTV show. He's like, I want to make a movie. So he was trying to like come up with an idea that he could make. So he went to film school and he had all these film buddies here in New York City. And we were sitting on his mom's couch on Thanksgiving. And this news story came on about two teenage girls in New York City who were suing McDonald's for their diabetes and obesity. And he and I got into this huge argument. He's like, come on, you can't sue a food. Like you walk in and you buy the food. How are they blaming this company? And I said, well, look at the way that they market to children. These are, two, these are teenage girls. And at the time, the marketing to kids was still really heavy. And they market it like it's safe to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And he said, well, what if I just ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And I was like, you would get really sick because I used to eat that way and I just healed myself like two years ago. And he's like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. And he literally, like, he got off the couch, called his buddy Scott, and we were filming two months later. Wow. And so, I mean, were you, did you think, like, yeah, let's, like, were you right away on board? No. Or were you like, this as sounds like the worst idea ever. As he's <laughs> running to the phone to call Scott, I'm like, no, come, don't do it. I was the only one because we had four doctors following his progress and nutritionists that we brought in to track him during the filming. And I was the only one who was like, dude, you're going to get so sick. All the doctors, including the gastroenterologists, like remember, this is back in 2000, 2002, where doctors were not talking about the impact of food on our body. And I was the only one who was like, this is a horrible idea. All the doctors were saying, no, the, the human body's really resilient. Your cholesterol might go up a few points, but you'll be fine. And if you haven't seen the movie, let me remind you that- Yeah, I'm like, it's been a long time. Yeah. He put on um, 20 pounds in one month. And he, well, only, he ate, so he ate only at McDonald's for how long? For 30 days. He never supersized it unless they asked him if he wanted to supersize. And he also limited his amount of steps to 10,000 a day because in New York City, it's very easy to get way over 10,000 steps a day. And he was like, well, if I'm going to do this, like I'm going to be more like the average American. 
And so he, you know, he, he scaled back his exercise just a touch and he got his, his cholesterol went up 60 points. He put on 20 pounds and he, by the third week, he was in so much pain and so much discomfort and he went in for another round of tests. He was giving himself non-alcoholic hepatitis because his liver the liver processes fructose and he was consuming so much fructose through everything, sodas, ketchup, like it's in everything on the menu. The liver can't process that much high fructose corn syrup. Wow. So his doctors were floored. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. And it really, like that little movie came out. We got into Sundance. It got nominated for an Oscar we, amazing. we went to like 25 countries in that next year that it premiered because it, it, took, it was like this little movie that took the world by storm. So then you didn't thought his idea for this movie was going to be terrible. But then like once it's there and you like, again, this is terrible that he's going through that. But are you then like, wow, we have the chance to make a real difference here? Like, you know, or like, how are you feeling as that then and like going around the world promoting it and stuff. Well, still, this was, you know, this was really before social media. Um, there, we didn't have the concept that it could have this global, like it, it was a case of going viral before we knew what going viral meant. Right. So you had no, no expectation for it going that big. I was just afraid McDonald's was going to sue us. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> honestly. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I just remember in the the third week when he started getting sick, I was like, okay, I'm going to like, you're allowed to finish this project, but as soon as you're done, I am taking over your dietary life. Like I wrote up, here's a vegan detox plan and I'm going to help you get back on track because you're already looking and feeling like crap. And, you know, that one little that one little throwaway comment is what like became like super size me part two. Like we, I wrote a book about that after the film came out, it's called the great American detox. And, you know, as we were traveling and talking about it, there was a really fascinating opportunity to talk with people around the world about what healthy eating meant to them. So we were, I mean, we were in different countries in Asia and I remember in South Korea, you know, I asked, well, what, you know, what does healthy eating mean to you before the fast food culture took over here? And they said, well, we were actually taught that you should try to eat like 20 to 30 different kinds of fruits and vegetable a day and a hundred a week. So it was all about variety. Interesting. Yeah. I'm even like, how, wait, well, how, can I name 30 vegetables right now? <laughs> And I'm like, and I've eaten, I'm like, and I eat very well. Yeah. Yeah. So it was all about variety, not like serving sizes, which is such a different way to think about it. Right. Because most of American ways of health, and it seems like it's constrictive and like this, this, and this, and it's not about mostly variety. It's like, okay, so these are the items, then you eat this, and you don't eat these, and you eat this. Like, it seems like, yes, like it's very, yet smaller or limiting and not expansive and mm-hmm. more different. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I loved that concept. So, and yeah, we, you know, we went around the world and talked about food and it was crazy. 
And then that whole experience, I'm guessing, just made you even more passionate about food and the body and healing and stuff. And like, yeah, so what was that? So you end up writing The Great American Detox. And like, yeah, where then you go personally after that? So Morgan continued to make reality shows and I was on a couple with him after, but that's not my, it's not my love. And I don't like being, even though they were very entertaining and educational versions of reality shows, that's not how I want to spend my time. That was really his world. So we started to kind of verge off and I did more writing and coaching. I was a health coach at this point. I had gone back to school again to the, um, Oh my gosh, what's it even called? Institute for Integrative Nutrition. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was finishing IIN when the movie came out. Oh, wow. So people were always asking me, how do I launch my health coaching career? And I was like, make an Oscar-nominated documentary about what you do. That's definitely worked for me. (laughs) Sorry, not to be flippant, but that's how it happened. (laughs) Um, It was just a case of incredibly good timing. And I, you know, we, were, we really rode that wave for a couple of years. It came out in theaters in 2004. And then I had my son. We got pregnant. We got married in 2006. So, you know, I have to say by that time, even by that time, like, you know, our, our relationship was on the rocks. You know, we'd been together for six years And, you know, we were planning on having a kid, but if I look back, I'm like, "Mm, maybe this was one of those cases where you're subconsciously thinking, oh, we just need to have a kid and things will get better. (laughs) (laughs) The happy story is that our kid is amazing. He's 13 and he's an artist and he's a skateboarder and he's super cool. Um, But our marriage did not last much longer. And then, yeah, so are you again, like, you just keep, your journey keeps going with the food. And where does that start to then evolve? Because then, I don't know, I've now, I've seen you've written several books. (laughs) Even going back to, I saw some vegan for dummies that I didn't know about. I don't know where that came. Yeah. That came into the journey, but yeah, like, um, because, but the book before this one now is like women craving. What is it? Um, so I wrote sorry. two dummies books. Was vegan. that where was that before or after the Great American Detox? Those were both after the Great American Detox. One was just a straight up cookbook, and one was like about vegan living and concepts and philosophy, etc. And then after, let's see, my son was about five. We were separated, so we were now like I was like single mom in it half the time and on my own half the time. And I also, oh my gosh, my mom got sick. My mom got diagnosed with cancer and died very quickly after her diagnosis. So just a ton of stress. Yeah, just a ton of stress and all this stuff happening in my personal life. And I started to get really sick again. I was exhausted. Um, I my menstrual cycle was coming so quickly. It was like every fourteen days. Oh my! So I was just w- totally worn out and exhausted, and I was obviously anemic because you know my body just couldn't handle the amount of stress that I was under, and I started craving meat. 
And how long had you been vegan? About 10 years. Wow. And I, I re- like, believe me, I did everything in the vegan handbook of what you're supposed to do to deal with these things. I went to vegan doctors. I, I had written books on this stuff, so I knew what to do. There's only so many sea vegetables you're you like, can okay, eat. Okay. Yeah, right. So how can I find, if my body's craving this, then I, okay, then let me find another source that's not yeah. animal. Yeah. And it turns out I have this genetic variance called MTHFR, which a lot of people have, and it has all kinds of weird and different symptoms. I feel like on another episode with a recovering addict, she might have mentioned it for some reason. Amy Dresner. Very possible. I don't remember why. Yeah, I'm, I'll have to look up. Yeah, I'll have to look up what she was. It had some, maybe something to do with the fact of two. Oh, maybe how her brain processes like oxytocin or serotonin, mm. which was leading more to out, like, uh, you know, addictive tendencies or something like that. It might have been something like that. I don't know. Very possible. <laughs> it, it has a wide variety of very strange symptoms and comorbidity stuff. Um, anyway, part. so that's part of my I don't absorb iron very well story. And I actually need to eat, I actually should go get some today. I actually need to eat organ meat. Like I need chicken liver. I need like Mm. the densest, most iron rich animal foods you can get. That's how my body absorbs iron. Like I was getting intravenous iron. I was like going to the doctor and getting an IV drip. I was- To try to get it any other way. Any other way. And so, yeah, I make up that- almost a dehabilitating choice to then be like, fuck, do I really have to put this animal in my body? Well, it was such a strange time because I had, I had this fear and this secret shame because a lot of my friends were vegan and not just vegan, but like professional vegans. And as had you had established yourself as that was my whole brand and they were animal yeah. rights activists. And I knew the behind the scenes gossip and like p- tearing people down who were discovered to be secretly eating animal products on the side. Like there's this a whole like nefarious world and culture that goes on and in, you know, moralistic communities. And I was like, well, this is terrifying. My body's craving something. And I started to secretly eat some animal products. Like I would go to the co-op and like put some salmon under my kale so nobody would see it in my cart, (laughs) go home with blinds drawn. And I was like, wait a minute, now I'm developing disordered eating, like I'm being secretive. But my body is feeling so much better when I eat this way. Like I need animal protein. That's just how my body works. So you are now starting to heal and see this, but then, yeah, this like shame about it and like, am I allowed? Who will I be? What will happen if then people know this about me? It's like putting another level of stress on you. So you're like healing and then, oh, like weighing, stuff's weighing on you. Yeah. And here's what I've discovered about myself through this process is when I feel I'm being dishonest or hypocritical, I'm like, I shut down. Authenticity is one of my core values. And I felt like a sham. I felt like a fraud. So I stopped calling myself vegan and I called all my recipes plant-based instead. But I was just looking around. I was like, wait a minute. 
like, okay, if vegans are all about like, we love animals, we're here to protect animals. I was like, wait a minute, humans, they're animals too. Humans are animals too. And because of my training at the culinary school and the nutrition program, I know about bioindividuality. Like different people thrive on different diets depending on where you live, what your lifestyle is like, what your ancestry is. There's all these different reasons for why we need different foods. And there's no moral judgment about that. It's just how we work as animals. Yeah. And throw in the fact that I grew up with an organic gardening master mom, and I know what it takes to actually grow food. A, it takes a lot of hard work. B, you actually have to put animal inputs into the soil. So you either have to use animal fertilizer or bone meal or fish meal or petroleum-based fertilizers. Like that's just the truth. So we live on a planet that is a cycle. We live on a planet with a lot of systems that interact. And I just started to see, it felt like this is hypocrisy that, A, your organic broccoli comes from a farm where they use animal fertilizer or bone meal. So what are we, you know, what are we really talking about here? Like, are the, so anyway, I just, I went deeper and deeper into what a healthy food system means. And I was like, I am also, a, I am part of that system. So I am not bad for needing different foods. Psst, it's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief interruption from this week's podcast sponsor that I am seriously so excited about, Blissoma Skincare. I've been using their products for the last probably a month, and it has seriously changed my skin. I've been using Green Beauty for over 10 years now. And I was honestly a little hesitant to try this brand for fear that I wouldn't like it. And I am head over heels in love. I am not shitting you. You guys know I do not bullshit. It really is changing my skin. Okay. And it's authentic green beauty. They're not just greenwashing things. They do things differently than most of the cosmetic industry, and that makes a huge difference for the health of your skin. They use premium, raw, organic, botanical ingredients that they source themselves from local farms and from those around the world. But their processes yield more medicinal compounds from each plant, and then they preserve them for us so that we actually get the true benefits. They restore skin's vitality through the sacred relationship between plants and people. It's really cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. Seriously, I'm obsessed and apparently I'm not the only one because one of the products I've been using, Restore, a facial oil, uh, was requested on set for L Fanning while working on Maleficent 2. So it's 10 oils cold-pressed and unrefined from rare seeds. It promotes a youthful, plumped appearance. I don't know. I'm not a skincare-like maven, but I do have to say I've been using their products for a month and my skin is changed. So go check them out, blissoma.com, links in the show notes. And they gave me a code, CLAIMIT, is good for 20% off all oils and serums. Feel free to DM me at your dryologist and I can let you know which products I've been using and what I love. But honestly, 
I am so obsessed with this brand. Go check them out. And let's get back to the episode. How was that then like sort of coming out? (laughs) The infamous coming out. Because I know, I mean, I know lots of people that have had to go through that, even like the creators of Cafe Gratitude and, you know, now they're regenerative, regenerative farming and stuff like that. Yeah. And like, yeah, stories of people hiding, yeah, hiding whatever at the farmer's market because they don't, they're afraid people will see that they run a vegan restaurant and (laughs) it's true. It's true. So I, oh man, I wrote and rewrote this blog post a thousand times before I finally posted it. And it's still the most popular post on my website. Like years later, I'm not vegan anymore. And I finally like, all right, I'm just going to publish this thing. And I went to bed. And the next morning I woke up to thousands, thousands of comments and shares. And again, you know, we all want our stuff to go viral. This was something I was like, I hope nobody ever sees this. You're like, all right, all right, I'm going to make this official. I'm just going to like slide this in before I go to bed. I did it, but I'm not going to like. I'm not really going to tell anybody about it. (laughs) And, you know, it's like hundreds of emails in my inbox, mostly from very angry vegans, like people who felt, and, you know, I can't blame them. They felt like they've been hoodwinked by me, but really it got extreme death threats. And I lost actual friends, not just like online friends, like friend, yeah. our kids played together, like people I had done projects with. I was now the enemy because I was a, a hypocrite and I was, I was basically a blasphemer. Mm. Um, and that was very, it was a rough week, man. <laughs> but I had just started dating my now husband, Bob, at that point. And he was so great. He was like... It was him and a handful of other friends who I had known for years, who I had been talking to in private. And they're like, we love you no matter what you eat. You know, I don't care if you're a vegan or not. So having a diversity of support was super important. And I I think that's actually, it's funny, I've never said this out loud, but I think that is a key to a happy life is actually having a diversity of people in your life so that you're allowed to grow and change as an individual. Right. Because if you, Evie, had only surrounded yourself with the people that identified and their livelihood was about, you know, I'm a vegan, we are spreading this message, you would have, yeah, you're, you would have been left on your own to create like, what, who am I now? This self-identity, it's like comes into question by simply, oh, I'm eating animal protein because it is the only thing that is now like allowing myself to heal. But now all of a sudden everyone hates me because of that. Yeah. And, and it really does strike at one of the right Maslow's hierarchy of needs. One of the most basic human needs is to be a part of a cohesive group or family or tribe or community. Like to be a part of the group is, is life sustaining. So to be shunned and kicked out and abandoned is a very real fear and threat to us as human beings. And I, you know, I lost half of my newsletter list that week, everybody unsubscribed and losing actual friends. It was really, it's very painful. It it truly is painful for us to lose people like that. 
Yeah. And I'm sure because, yeah, then they're like calling you a liar and stuff. But it's also like you didn't lie. You were telling the, the your truth until there was a new layer. Like we're evolving and changing. It's not wrong. Yeah. Like I was wrong and right now. It's just this is this is the truth today. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm glad to say that I have a community now for the most part, right? You're always kind of surprised by some folks and some relationships over time where you can talk about hard things, where you can talk about your truth and hopefully come to a place where you can still accept each other. Well, and I think that that's honestly, the more people, as much challenging as it is to open up about those real things, those hard things, then that's what then allows other people to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, we're all just living in these surface level things because nobody is opening up. Like, how do you ever get deep with someone or truly know them if nobody is ever opening up and sharing their stuff? I used to feel like nobody really knows me. I have all these amazing friends and nobody knows me but because I was like, I'm so independent. I don't let people in. I don't, something's wrong with me. I don't tell them. Why is nobody ever here for me? Because I was not opening up. <laughs> Yeah, I only wanted people to see the powerful, strong, joyful Trisha. Right. Who does everything. Look at me. I'm kick ass. And then, but why does nobody really support me? And nobody even knows who I am. That was me not opening up. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious if you have this experience because only in the last few years have I gotten really, like I'm going deeper all the time in myself. And because I grew up in this family with so much trauma and addiction and mental health issues, like- I was I was raised to keep secrets. I was raised to keep secrets and not tell anybody about the shit that was going on in my family. And it's only in the last few years and honestly in the last 2 months that I have had some of the deepest most terrifying conversations with people in my family about what really happened. And I'm keeping those conversations private because people are still alive who do not want these things discussed in public. And that's totally fine. But at least we're finally talking about it in the family. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I totally feel it. And I had never thought of it that way of being raised to keep secrets. But I was definitely raised in a way of like, no, we don't want to hear about your feelings or why you did things like shut up was often being said, you know, like, no, 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 like, just don't talk about that. Don't whatever, just get over it. Just this, whatever. I don't need to know why you did this. And I always wanted to talk about my feelings. So yeah, like I and that's what be made me then become. So I am very independent. I am very strong. I am very this. And so it is very challenging for me to open up to ask for support for anybody to be there because it's this dupe readed. I mean, like, I just yeah, I do this I call bullshit video video series. And the one I released this week that we're taping this is I call bullshit on like not allowing anybody to support you and not really truly receiving because I've lived most of my life. Like I don't need anyone. I got this. Whether it's, you know, let me figure out this thing. I don't need to hire anybody to help me or this. I don't need help. Let me help you. And that really it's, you know, but I was like, I love myself so much. I am so strong. I believe in myself, but really it's a self-worth issue. I'm not allowing people to, I'm not opening up to people. I'm not allowing people to help me because I'm afraid they won't love me. I'm afraid yes. I'm not enough. I'm yes. afraid of this. So I believed I've been self-love since I was 15. I almost took my life. Like I, you know, I do all these awesome things and I did them by myself is what I told myself. Of course, you don't do anything by your own, by yourself. Like, which is more bullshit videos I've called out. But like, you know, it was this putting on this strong front that is real, but also behind it is the fear 
because nobody cares about me. Nobody wants to help me. If I share this, if I ask for help, they won't be there for me. Yeah. So I just have to do it on my own. Absolutely. Ugh. Which I wanted to talk about more stuff, but like the point, which I mean, I might get to, but since we're here, like with your book and I haven't read it fully, but just even like the idea of it, the fact you're writing a book on having conversations and it was originally... You you guys wrote it first and published it independently as Getting to Hell Yes. Is that right? Correct. So actually, so Bob and I, we started teaching some couples workshops years ago, like seven years ago. So how does that come about? And like, what's his background? Where do you go from, okay, you're no longer vegan. <laughs> you don't know what's going on. And now you're leading couples workshops. <laughs> so because of the huge kerfuffle and the viral nature of my coming out post, I got another book deal. I got approached by a publisher um, to write Women, Food, and Desire, all about women's cravings. So that wasn't necessarily your idea. That was coming from, okay, you've just outed yourself and, you know, this is a big thing. Yeah. Can you share about this? Yeah. It got so much attention that, you know, I started getting approached and I was like, okay, I need to develop this into an idea, but what's the, like, what's the real, the heart of it? And that got into, you know, I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before, but women's bodies, our relationship with our body and with sexuality and with food are very intertwined. And food becomes so food becomes so dangerous. And we also have this dangerous relationship with sex and sexuality because we're supposed to be pure, but we're also supposed to be sexy, but not too much this and not too much that and don't eat too much, but don't be too restricted. So, you know, food become, sex is dangerous for us. And we learned that at about age eight, sex is dangerous. So food becomes our safe sex. And it's all about what cravings in the body mean and how we suppress them. But what if we actually start listening to our bodies? So that was that whole book, Women, Food and Desire. And I cannot even remember how we got into teaching couples workshops. (laughs) I have to be honest, but Well, so also, yeah, so then that book comes out too. And is that sort of like leading to like starting to want to move away from food and not maybe even like not wanting to, but just like allowing yourself to evolve into different things like food had been your thing for so long. Like, and yeah, like even, uh, yeah, I was going to try to skip ahead, but let's not then. Where does the watercolor, like, you know, like I feel like I've seen different things or like then you're coaching, you had, you know, I remember when you were starting and maybe, maybe it it wasn't when you were starting, but I just remember like your creatrix, was that after you started? I don't, and excuse me if I'm calling things the wrong things, because no, <laughs> I didn't okay. do research. I'm just re- going by my own memory. <laughs> your memory is pretty strong, I have to say. Um, no, so I, I started leaving just pure food and health coaching and going more into emotional eating because that was always part of food. like, what do you, cr- it's not that you don't know what to eat. It's that we can't stick to the plan because we have these cravings and food addictions, et cetera. Right. So it got more into that territory. But then as I was going into that kind of health coaching and food coaching, I started saying, okay, well, what is it that you really want? Oh, like women are actually suppressing their, their drive, their vision. The women that tend to work with me are very driven. They have big dreams but we're actually kind of terrified to be called too driven or being called out for wanting too much. So we suppress our creativity. We suppress our voices. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, I was doing the same thing, 
which was when I started going through my divorce, I started taking watercolor classes just for myself, just on the side. I was like, I just, like what drew you to that? Oh my God, you're going to laugh at this. So <laughs> my whole mom's side of the family, they're all incredible artists and they're, you know, <laughs> mental illness, addiction, and arts. They're all amazing artists. But my mom and my grandmother always said how much they hated using watercolors. Because it's, it's, it's harder to control. Like it's a, it's a totally different process than using oil paints or whatever. And so because there's this weird... Um, competition thing in my family, especially with my mom, unfortunately. Um, I was like, oh, well, I'll do watercolors. That's safe. If I'm going to get into painting, I'll do something that they don't do. So there's no competition there. But I found an amazing teacher and I just, I took to it right away. I love, I love it. I can lose myself in it. I literally get into a flow with the water and with the paint and started doing this thing on my own. Nobody knew I was doing this. Nobody knew I was taking class. I was taking classes. And that was for like too, was that years. just like an internal voice of like, I need to do something for me, like that's creative, like a space. Like Exactly. I just need to do something that I'm not monetizing, that I'm not trying to teach anybody else how to do. I just want to go learn something fun that's pretty. I just want to do something pretty. That was it. I love it. <laughs> and you know, taking classes for eight years, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. Like I should yeah let me put a picture of this fish up on Facebook. And like within 10 minutes, a friend bought it. I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I should put up some more pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how painting became a thing. But it really started to dovetail into this now leadership coaching that I was doing with women. You know, I was working with women who, yes, they still had concerns around food and body, but it was also the suppression of their, their drive and their vision and what they wanted to create in the world that was linked directly to the overeating or the, the lack of self-care. Mm. And in the midst of all of this, Bob and I had taught a couple of these couples workshops. And again, I'm like, what were they even about? I don't remember. But what I do remember about them is that we taught this really simple little framework because we saw that like couples were coming to these workshops. It was basically, it was all um, heterosexual couples, like a man and a woman. They were all coming to these workshops. And it was always the woman dragging the man to the workshop right. to be like, make him act better. <laughs> you know, that was the gist of it. Yeah. And within the first five minutes, Bob and I were like, wow, people are here for very different reasons in the same couple. So we need to get everybody on the same page. And he was a, a corporate consultant. He was from the world of design thinking and lean methodology. It's like this whole other world that I don't even play in. But we have some overlap in how we work with people and how we help them get clear and then take steps towards what they want. Yeah, because I'm like, consulting is a kind of confusing word, but I make up, you know, like that. Yeah, that it's like, okay, you're taking other people's input and like, let's get, yeah, like on the same page, like, let's get aligned or like, all right, yeah. <laughs> if I hear you, I hear you, I got you, I got this, let's go here. Like, that's what my vision of that word is. <laughs> I like to joke that Bob sits in a room, listens to people talk, asks them a few questions and then tells them what yeah. to do. Like, that's what he does. <laughs> I'm like, I should be a consultant because he gets paid like, oh. a crazy amount of money for that. So, so we came up with this four-step conversation. 
And it was the one thing that people kept asking us for later. We would, like for two years after these workshops, our friends and people who came were like, what was that four-step process again? Because it really worked in the workshop and I need to have another conversation. I'm like, okay. Because you would ha- lead them through it and then they would, in the workshop, have it. So they had had the experience. But it really worked. And then when they would, another conversation that they needed to have in their life came up, either around work or relationships, they were like, oh, wait, what was that thing again? Because that really helped. So we're like, all right, we have to stop explaining this on the phone to people because it takes like a good half an hour to 45 minutes to really walk somebody through it. Like, let's just whip up a Google Doc and share it with people. And we're like, Hmm. wait a minute, this is a thing. Like, why does this work? What do people need to do to set it up before they go into the four steps? So we're like, huh, this could be a book, but a short book. Like I, I've been through the publishing process four times at this point with, with real publishers. And I was like, babe, I do not want to spend two years getting this book out to the world because that's how long it takes. Yeah, just- and also people are like asking for it right now. You're trying to like, let me just get these people this information. So we, we wrote it. It was a 90-minute read. We self-published it. And, you know, my, my little bit of marketing and launching skills, like it popped up to number one on Amazon and a publisher was like, Hey, we see you have a self-published book. We would like to buy the rights and expand this. And, you know, we, we took it on and, you know, in the last two years that we decided to expand it and make it into a new thing, we've been teaching it to more and more people. We've shared it with more and more people and we just keep getting these incredible stories back. Um, I mean, one is that we actually use this method to decide to get married, but then also to plan our wedding. And so we shared it with friends, two different sets of friends that were getting married, like huge, like an Indian wedding and a, an Orthodox Jewish wedding, where these are like multi-day, multi-continent right. weddings. And they both used the the structure to help them plan. And they're like, this was amazing. Like this got everybody, all the in-laws on the same page. Like we just got these incredible tales back. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important in that. So the new title is radical alignment. And I just love that. Like, yeah, I just love that. Alignment is one of like a key thing for me and, you know, I, an integrity. And I feel like those are very similar and then radical. And just, I don't think we're not taught how to like, we're not taught how to have conversations. Like, yeah, most of us are taught to shut up, to keep secrets, to not talk about the hard stuff, to not share what's real, what's showing up for us, what's scary, you know, like, unfortunately that has been the truth for most of us. And so, yeah, like I have been someone that has I I have the tendency to have the hard conversations, to, you know, to stand up for what I think is right when I had been, you know, with bosses, with family members, in relationships. But that doesn't mean that it's not fucking hard. It's still hard. And I still have the tendency to believe it is easier for me to leave a situation, to leave my relationship where I even have two kids. It'd be easier for me to leave, get a new house, have, you know, dual custody than to <laughs> I'll just burn down my life and start over rather than yeah, talk yeah. about our budget. Yeah, 
I'm like, that's real. Like, I'm saying this because I bet this is real for other people and they just don't like even realize it. Like, <laughs> you're telling my you're telling my story I'm like, right now. Mm, OK, I'm just ready to move out. I'm going to do that rather than have this conversation about things that are annoying me about the way that so you, let me tell like, you corrected what? our kids or something. It, it wasn't just that I was raised to keep secrets. It's that in my family experience, important conversations or emotional conversations led to a fight, right? That's what they became. And I don't like fights. I'm the smoother over. I'm the diplomat in the family. I'm the codependent one in the family who's like trying to make everybody else happy, basically. So why would I bring up a hard conversation? Like, no, that's insane. The other assumption that I had running in the background was that if I brought up a tough topic... I had to have the answer and I had to defend it and I had to win and the other person had to lose. I have lose. to know everything. I have to know the best way to present it. I have to have the answer, the result. This is what we're doing. I'm right. You're wrong. Like yep. sort of thing. Like, yeah, totally. I get that for sure. And when you're unclear about something, trying to figure out the answer by yourself in your own head is a recipe for insanity. And when you're in a relationship with someone you're not going to grow together as people if you're not actually connecting in a safe, empathic way. So it's wild to me that we hit on this really simple four-step pro, which I would love to walk you through, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's wild to me that as we started examining why it worked so well, we're like, oh my God, we're like we didn't even know all of this ancillary science that was being studied. And we talked to our friend, Dr. Srini Pillay, he's a Harvard and MIT trained neuroscientist. And he walked through it with us. And he's like, oh, this is why this works so well, which is Right. So you amazing. just like figured out, yeah, okay, this works. And then you got these results like from, <laughs> yeah. Because well, we've both been- I love when that happens. <laughs> That's sort of like, I have a lot of these like formulas and then I like work with people and like, you know that you're kind of doing this type of therapy? And I'm like, I don't know. These are just things that I figured out that got me there. <laughs> Exactly. We'd both been coaching and consulting for so long. We just, we figured out, figure out those things yeah. without knowing why it works. <laughs> so, so here's the, here's the deal. I'm going to teach you right now, like how to invite somebody to a tough conversation where they actually want to come have the conversation with you and then how to set the scene before you go into the four steps. So the first thing is don't tell someone we need to talk. Last thing anybody ever wants to hear. You're immediately defensive. <laughs> what did I do? What are they going to say? Are we breaking up? Is this what I... <laughs> we need to talk. Worst four words ever. Instead, like literally, like hand, get the book and hand, them, hand it to them or tear out the cheat sheet in the book and be like, I would love to talk to you about topic X, whether that's budget or kids or vacation or back to school or anti-racism work in our family, whatever that is. Let's can we find a time in the next 48 hours where we can spend just talking about this? So give them some advanced warning, give them, here's but the, without the, we need to talk. It's like an invitation. Yeah. And it's super clear. We're going to talk about this topic, which again, one of the reasons why I didn't bring up tough conversations in the past was because I was afraid that at any moment, the other person could say, well, you did this 10 years ago. And like, you'd have to like relitigate everything you've ever done wrong. There's no place for that in this conversation, which is so relieving and so relaxing. Then you both agree to not talk over each other and you get equal speaking time. 
So we actually use our phones and give each other two to five minutes each for each section. So you're not, you're not arguing points. Nobody's going to interrupt you. You're just either being the speaker or being the listener. Which that's so key, just being the listener. That's like we just so want to be like heard, but so often we get into these conversations and everybody's on edge and wanting to prove that why or the I'm not wrong, like whatever, mm-hmm. like that. So we're not listening. Yeah. So you're not allowed to talk over. You're going to have these things. So it's like have that space, say the things. One person's listening and probably not just like scripting what they're going to say when the two minutes are over. <laughs> yeah. And actually, if you give the other person the four steps in advance, you can see like when I, I, I use that we use it by ourselves all the time, like to take some time and think about what your answers are for one, two, three, and four. So that when mm. we come together, we have some thoughts already formulated. And for those of us that are not verbal processors, like I actually need to write stuff out and think about it for a while first. Mm. So I show up clear. And then you go into the conversation (laughs) and you start off by, again, repeating what is the topic we're talking about and what's our intention for this thing. So let's say it's, this is actually a conversation we've been in a lot lately, is um, do, you know, this possible visit to see our 90-year-old mother-in-law for her birthday. And now the intention is like, we would like to go and be a part of a celebration and, and, you know, do something as a family, but it's also okay if one of you has the, your why your intention for it could be obligation. Like, I feel like I have to go do this thing because it's your mom. So just your, your simple why my simple intention. And you can think about like, what values does this thing bring out in me. So you each share your intentions. And by the way, in the book, Radical Alignment, we're like, we have scripts written out for all these different ways that we've used it in our life at home and at work. So really great examples. But then you each share your concerns, your concerns, your fears, your worries. And this is a really amazing way to calm your amygdala to calm your brain. And what we learned from our friend, the doctor, is that when you speak your fears out loud, your brain hears it and you notice that the other person is not leaving. You're not getting kicked out of the group. You didn't die. Like, oh, I said my fears and everything's okay. And we just need a safe space to put our worries out on the table. Yep. And we, we also have an agreement, and you can talk about this in the setting the scene part, like do your best not to take anything personally because the, the human brain comes up with worries sometimes about your conversation partner that have no basis in reality. Like one of my fears about writing this book with my husband was that we're going to fight and hate each other and end up divorced, right? <laughs> and But then like I've written this book is it with that? Like, oh, I've written this book, Radical Lyman, saying to get a conversation. So now, like, I can't get divorced ever. <laughs> like, is that, was it that sort of thing? I mean, it was just, the, the you don't meta want to conversation. The because- <laughs> right? The meta conversation we had about writing about the conversation was, 
like, who are we to write a book about relationship and conversation? But it actually helped us relax and realize, oh, of course our marriage comes first. Like, of course, if we start to argue, like the book is not as important as our marriage. And just getting that clear, it seems so simple and obvious, but until you hear the other person say it and take it in. Right. And sometimes just saying it out loud is like taking it around. Otherwise, it's swirling around, swirling around constantly. You can try to like process yourself, internal process, know this, it'll be okay. But it's a lot of times those real worries and fears and doubts will just keep popping up and swirling and you just like keep batting them away thinking they're go. But yeah, like speaking them out loud is so huge. It is. And I've got to be honest. So my son is 13 years old. We've been using this conversation with him for six years in all different settings, going on vacation, going back to school, all these things. And he now has the vocabulary. He knows he will be heard when he has a fear or a worry. He is the most incredible. It is like one of the greatest joys of my life that he at 13 is able to talk about emotional topics in such a confident, clear way. Like it, I was like, dude, it took me until I was in my late 30s to talk like you talk. Just so you I'm know. I'm crying. You telling me that. I like you guys get to be like there are tears in my eyes when you're telling me about because I can't imagine being a 13 year old girl, but a 13 year old boy. I feel like must my makeup is even more to be expressing your feelings. Yeah, I have a two, a just turned three year old and five year old. And same thing, like they are young, but when I hear them say, mom, I'm sad, or when you did this, that made me angry, which they get from me saying that to them when things are upset. I was angry because of this. I'm sad because this happened. So I'm doing that. And it's the proud, my proudest moments when they express their emotions are starting to link them. And I want them to that growing up because again, I was, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. And I always felt so lost and lonely and confused and as if nobody knew me and nobody saw me. Yeah. So we're, I just want to say good job, mom. Like we're ending the family lineages (laughs) of toxic communication here. (laughs) So after you each share your intentions and your concerns, then you share your boundaries around this specific topic about whatever you're talking about. And there's two questions that I can share with you. We have lots of questions on the book to help you get clear about this. But the first one is, what do you need to be your best around this topic? And the other one is, what do you need to feel safe? So those two questions will help you form boundaries to help you show up to this event or trip or whatever. And again, I was never asked what my boundaries were. I had no, like, I was not allowed to have boundaries. (laughs) There were none in our family. (laughs) So once you each share your boundaries, you go into dreams. And I love that we knew to put this at the end because what happens when you go through the tough stuff of sharing your concerns and your boundaries, and then you get to dreams you express like, what do, if this were to go amazingly well, what would be true for me, for you, for us, for the whole family? And so you start really, that's where you start getting into alignment. And if you do this conversation in person, you start to release oxytocin together, which is that bonding and love hormone. And it is really hard to hear your partner's dreams and not want that for them too. And then they want your dreams to come true. 
And then you start figuring out how to work on the emotional landmines that were uncovered earlier together. That's where you start coming up with the energy like, okay, we're in this together. We're a team. And that is like, that's so soothing and inspiring to me. Every time we go through this conversation, we like, we really do come back together, even if there's things that we have to figure out that we've uncovered. I love it. I love it. And I was just, yeah, when you're saying the la- the f- fourth step is the dreams, because I, yeah, I'm like imagining, you know, you're getting into this conversation. It's like you can feel like uncomfortable shoulders in. Oh, okay. Nervous energy. Then you're un- like sharing these things. So, but, but also like we said, you're speaking it out loud. So it starts to release. So suddenly it's like you're getting freer and freer. And then when your dreams, it's like, you're like, have like released this sort of valve you know, it's like, oh, possibilities, dreams, what? Like now you can just see and visualize things way differently and clearer because you've released those waves. Yeah. And then, yeah, then having someone there to be supporting you with that and dreaming it with you. Yeah. It feels amazing just hearing about it and not even being in. <laughs> and it it truly has like it has created a, a shared vocabulary in our family where, and, and, you know, Bob, again, Bob does this with business groups. He does this with teams and now they have trust. They have trust and empathy for each other. So they actually feel like, um, they're, they're more likely to be supportive of somebody else. If the other person needs assistance or if somebody comes to them with a, a, a concern or a problem, like they're there for each other. And, man, do we need that more now than ever. Totally. Um, And so can you also, you know, when you're laying out these things, it seems even like, oh, I can even hand them the cutout or whatever. But the way you're sharing it too, I make up, people can still do this whether, you know, someone else has read the book, you don't have to give them a handout or anything. It's just that even just one per amazing if two people are on that same thing. But if one person has these steps in their mind when they're entering the conversation, then they are able to like create this safe space and lead into conversations in a more respectful, honest, aligned way. I use the structure with my ex-husband, my son's dad all the time. He doesn't know I'm using this structure, but I use it to lead conversations so they're more clear and productive. Uh, the woman who wrote the forward to the book, Rebecca Baruki, she has, she's like, this saved my marriage. This saved my marriage. And I use it in business. All that she uses it in negotiations for publishing all the time. You know, I've used it in sales conversations with potential clients just as a way to like really understand the other person. You know, empathy isn't just knowing how somebody feels. It's understanding where they're coming from whether you agree with it or not doesn't matter. It's about truly like asking the questions to really understand their motivations, where they're coming from, so that you truly get what they need. You, you hear what is it that this person is about and what do they want? It's, I wish I had had this clarity 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and that's what I caught a bit of yours and Rebecca's live the other day too. So, and she was even mentioning like in replying to a social media comment. So that, and it's sort of like using the process yourself to try to, yes, see where this person is coming from. So like, yeah, you're opening up the compassionate empathy instead of just reacting from your personal experience and how that message is landing for you. It's like giving you your own like internal conversation guideline 
to assess what's coming at you or what not even maybe in a place you're going to have a conversation with people too. I'm sure just like when you can go into judgment, yeah. whoa, whoa, it can pull you back into like looking at things I'm guessing. Yeah. And I use this by myself alone all the time. You know, before I launch projects, before I send an important email, mm. before I have a conversation with somebody, I just walk through the force. Like, what am I doing? How do I feel? What do I need? What's my ideal outcome? And you guys, speaking of Rebecca, are now, this is going to go into another Zara. Yeah, she has the children's book, the Zara's Big Messy Day. Zara's Bedtime is about to come out. And so this is going to, this method is going to go into a Zara kids book. This is like my dream come true. She's amazing. teaching the all-in method in her next children's book to teach it to little kids. And we're going to write a little, uh, a little post wrap up for the parent or the teacher who's reading the book with their kid so that they can use it at home. <gasps> I'm so excited. So amazing. Cause yeah, like we've been saying, we were definitely not taught the skills of conversation <laughs> growing up. So changing that moving forward. Yeah. So huge. Yeah. I was feeling there was one more question I wanted to ask you about it before I get to the last questions I ask everybody else, but I can't remember what it was. Um, oh, I think it was just, you know, with the, yeah, you were bringing up compassion and empathy and stuff. And like, that's something that has, you know, changed my life a lot is that, you know, once I started to get into all my own shit and uncovering my things and, oh, I see this and the fears and the doubts and, oh, this story of, okay, I'm independent. And like, I'm so aware of the bullshit that we have as humans and then seeing I'm not alone. So that's like my work. Yeah. The reason I share, the reason I'm calling myself out all the time is because I know it's not just me, that us humans are doing these things and that. So it allows me to have compassion for myself, which is so huge. And then for everyone else, even when I don't understand them and where I'm coming from. So what pulls me back from the judgment that is again, like we're, it's, we're prone to judgment, but we don't have to stay there. And so like, yeah, this is another thing, like having this bank of these four check-in steps allows you to then have more compassion for yourself, for humans to be checking, like, what am I even feeling? Where is this coming from? And you, how do I want to show up? You know, we're, we're humans surrounded by other humans who also did not get training on how to communicate effectively. So when you start showing up as a better leader in conversations, people will so appreciate you, even if they're not able to articulate it or pinpoint what it is. I've seen it happen again and again with the clients that I've taught this to. I've seen it in my own family life where people just like they, they have this new level of trust for you. Because you're sharing yourself vulnerably and giving them the safe opportunity for them to do the same. And it's a totally different way for most people to interact. So it may feel a little weird the first time you do it, but keep with it. I swear to you, this is truly transformational in how we connect as people. I love that. And that reminded me that, yeah, like I, you know, one of my favorite things, like I will often get messages from friends and people and, and like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just unloaded this on you or vented it. And I was like, oh, please never tell, say you're sorry. Like it's my favorite thing ever that you see me as a safe place to share like a doubt, fear, whatever. Like you think it's a vent of whatever happened in that day. Like, that to me is the biggest honor that you shared that with me. Because again, I'm like used to like, no, we don't talk about things. We put it off. And like, but I, you know, so I'm like, please, 
Like I am honored. <laughs> I, was I get it. I get it. Man, yeah, that's beautiful. Um. All right. So I ask everybody to pick. Oh, I'm sharing your document <laughs> with you. I think. Do you see the keychain phrases? I do. Here now. Okay. So these are phrases that go on my keychains for my product line, and I ask everybody to pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel they want as a reminder in their life right now. Because I will send you the keychain. <gasps> And then why? Why do you want that reminder in your life right now? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to say everything is going my way. Yes. Everything is going my way. Yeah, I'm like, that's on the way I've been drinking out of. I love that. That's that's been my go-to for a year and a half now. (laughs) That's so great. Well, it was was a a toss-up between that one and trust the timing of life. Those two – feel very similar to me because like you, I've been like, push, rush. I got to do it. It's all me. It's all on me. I am the one responsible for everything and do it now. So I'm going to, I'm going to do the everything is going my way and relax a little little bit. (laughs) Yeah. It's a nice, like, take a breath. Oh, everything is going my way. What is a go-to that you do to raise your joy levels? Ooh, um, I love, 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 love my garden. We live in New York City, but we have a rooftop and I have about 60 potted plants up there. 60. Yeah, with a hammock. And it's like, if I can go see some birds and look at the flowers, it's just immediate joy. Love that. Okay, ask everybody how to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So what is easiest for me is to blank. What is best for me is to blank. What is easiest for me is just to do everything myself. (laughs) What is best for me is to ask people in my life to help me or do their thing for themselves (laughs) rather than me doing it. Yes. (laughs) Keeping on a theme, you can see. Yeah. (laughs) A mutual theme. Uh, All right. The last thing is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I believe that our feelings of Feeling enough, successful, fulfilled, worthy, whatever it is, are not out there someday. Once I have this, once I'm in this relationship, have this, you know, salary, job, book deal, money, then I will feel this. It's something that we have to claim for ourselves every day, sometimes every moment of the day. What are you claiming for yourself right now? I am a successful artist. Yes. Yeah. Love Mm -hmm. it. I'm sitting here in my painting studio having just sold another painting and that's, it feels pretty incredible to be able to say that I've reached that point. Love it. I love you. Thank you so, so much for this amazing conversation and the book that you guys just put out. Thank you. I so um, appreciate being here with you. Yeah, uh, I'm going to share links to all the things. And um, yeah, everybody go check out Alex and all of her amazing creations. And we'll see where she goes next, guys. Where will, like, (laughs) who knows? What's coming next? (laughs) 
Okay. I hope you guys loved that episode and laughed and cried along with us. For full show notes on things we mentioned, for all of Alex's stuff, go to yourjoyologist.com slash podcast and you'll find all the episodes there. For more on Alex, go to alexandrajameson.com. Link again will be in the show notes. She's delicious Alex on Instagram. Links to her books in the show notes. She also is the host of Her Rules Radio. That's her podcast. It's a number one rated podcast. And um, yeah, you can find her watercolor paints on her Instagram and beyond. And she does sell those. It's such an honor to have these conversations and it's so much fun. So thanks for listening and being here with me. I really love hearing from you. I love seeing you share the episodes and tagging me. I'm at your joyologist. And if you haven't yet, please hit subscribe. And if you want to leave a review on the platform you're listening to, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, they really like when people leave reviews. That helps the podcast get more found and discoverable so it can reach more people. One, I really love reading them. (laughs) And I will send you a gift. So if you leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com and I'll send you a gift for my product line. You know, I have keychains, I have magnets, I have mugs, I have journals, the affirmation deck, so many goodies. So leave me a review, screenshot it, podcast at yourjoyologist.com. To go ahead and shop my products, go to yourjoyologist.com and hit shop. Get my app, yourdrialogist.com slash app, or you can look it up in the Google Play and the Apple App Store. It's called Own Your Awesome. Hundreds of powerful thoughts and phrases. And yeah, come hang with me. I'm at yourdrialogist on Instagram. And like I said, I love interacting with you. I love seeing messages from you. I love hanging with you and letting, I love knowing that you're listening and what you're getting from it, why you're listening. (laughs) All right, so let's leave with the final note of right now, what can you think of that you are calling in for yourself? So like creating your own affirmation. So I use affirmations, you know, of like reminding myself, I am strong, I am powerful, I am a badass, I am... And also to remind me of things like I am trusting the timing of my life. I am letting go of what no longer serves me. But another way I use them is to call myself into something I want. Like I am a best-selling author. I am an author. I am, you know, something that I don't yet have, but that I want by creating an I am statement around that, then it allows me to be like, try it on and feel it. And then it allows me to take little steps. So like, okay, if I'm telling myself a best-selling author, maybe I better go go to work and write something. <laughs> so think about it right now. What are you calling in and claiming for yourself? Something that you do want. And it could even be like, <laughs> I, I want to not be stressed out. So I am not stressed out. <laughs> I am at peace. So those ways to play with I am statements and affirmations. So think about that. Create one for yourself. Use it. All right. I'll catch you here next week.